Hey, and welcome to Shitty Book Reports, where the reports are shitty, but the books are not. I'm Mark. I'm here with Trevor. How are you feeling today, Trevor? I feel like a treasure chest on a deserted island. That's just pretty good. Just diamond in the Undiscovered. rough. Undiscovered. Undiscovered. Okay. Feeling good. Uh, how, what are you feeling like? I feel like I'm all ready to uh, have a month or so without leaving my apartment. You know, <laughs> I think everyone everyone's kind of settling into that right now. Exactly. Uh, well, that's that's a, be... my metaphor is a little bit connected to that. I am. Uh, I don't want to sound uh, overly joyous, but you know, I'm not. I'm not. I haven't gone crazy because of quarantine yet. Yeah. Let's just put it that way. I'm enjoying it. So that's my treasure chest on the deserted island. I'm enjoying it so far. But uh, okay. Well, yeah. This yeah. is uh, this is going to be one of those timestamp episodes uh, where it's pretty obvious when this was recorded you know <laughs> yeah when this um, came out so you know this is it's gonna be one of those times when there's or this is one of those times where there's pretty much one thing to talk about you know you yes. talk to strangers you talk to whoever there's one thing that's on everyone's mind so we might as well talk about it here as well exactly and i thought we could do a little psa here for staying at home and reading during this outbreak of uh COVID-19 so absolutely you know if you're in a place that's affected by it which is pretty much a blanket statement now or really you're anticipating it or anything you know why not use this opportunity to read that book you've been you know left sitting on the shelf for for years mm -hmm. so I got a couple topics to talk about here um yeah, there's really no excuse. There's no after this. We don't want to hear anything like, oh, I just didn't have I just couldn't get to it. Yeah. So, you know, I could never get into Dostoevsky because I just didn't have the time. I, I don't yeah. want to hear it anymore. What am I just going to take a couple of weeks off and read a book or something? Exactly. No. Uh, so what? Yeah, exactly. Like that kind of leads into this. What would you say are good books for the, like this scenario specifically? Like, well, I think that you're right in saying that definitely those, definitely those books that are taking up the sh more than the rest of the books on your shelf, like, oh, that's like a thousand pages, or oh, that's like a series that's like you know, you know, a few thousand pages, yeah. and it's like, dude, now or never. Definitely, yeah. um, you know, maybe some fantasy series if there's one that you've been storing away that you're like, I don't know if I want to get into that, or you know, like. I mean, the quarantine would have to be pretty long for you to master Proust. That's sort of like a lifelong thing. But hopefully we're not locked down enough for everybody to fully read Proust. That would be... Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> the world would be different. But get if into it. just runs long enough to read the whole series or something. Mm -hmm. um, a lot of people, you know, comparing this to like The Stand, you know, maybe a good time to read that. Would Are you some... Are you one to like read something that's relevant to the moment? In the world or kind of like there's i guess you could either read that or do the complete opposite and just like distance yourself from it yeah i think you're i think you're going one way or the other it's like yeah. you're either gonna go straight in and acknowledge the pain or you're gonna do a bit of escapism and just be like nope i'm gonna read some some book that is you know about you know, you could read like maybe uh, actually a good book that I just thought of that I've never covered on the podcast is uh, Albert Camus' The Plague. Probably be mm -hmm. good to read right now. That would be theme appropriate. Yeah. So what else is, would be theme appropriate? Like the, st the stand is one of them for sure. I think mm -hmm. a lot of people are talking about that. It's like yeah. a really boring version of the standard. 
the plague is probably a boring the version. Plague. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, you got love in the time of cholera. Maybe. Love in the time of cholera. Yeah, would be good. Um, there's probably a few books that I'm not fully educated about, about sort of like the bubonic plague. I keep thinking I had the good fortune of visiting Venice like a few years ago. And obviously lots of people, all of Italy is sort of locked down. And I just keep thinking of like, there's actually a church in Venice that was erected after like once the plague started to sort of like flag itself and yeah. that's and it's sort of like a pilgrimage journey for some people to to get there as a tribute to um you know how horrible the black plague was so i've been thinking about that like <laughs> will venice just erect some ultra modern building being like covid19 is over yeah well there are already i mean like there are things being constructed because of this you know hospitals or whatever yeah. that maybe if when they're no longer needed or you know that sort of thing it's they will be relics to this time. <laughs> to this, yeah. yeah. To 20. And it's it's really funny how, you know, I've been thinking over and over that, you know, you just can't, you know, you can never predict what like a year will be. But this is definitely like 2020 is going to be the year of coronavirus. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so I think we were talked we talked a little bit about like diving headfirst into this. Um, I think though where we are with like what, what is, you know, being advised to do where you're just supposed to be socially distant or just, you know, stay at home. Like Mm -hmm. this is kind of a case where like escapism is actually encouraged. Like that's the thing that you're being asked to do is just stay at home. Mm -hmm. So you might as well get absorbed in some world where things are good. (laughs) Yeah. We're talking about video games. We're talking about tv series and we're also and for everyone in this little club of ours it definitely is a time for books yeah it's like what's a good uh what's a good escapism i mean that like science fiction offers a lot of that where it's like you know some of it's or science fiction or fantasy where it's like worlds that are just cooler than what we're dealing with now (laughs) yeah it's like uh yeah completely different than this well, yeah, I mean, my my go-to sci-fi author, you know, if people are out there looking for quarantine reading, I would definitely dive into some Arthur C. Clarke. He's he's cool um, for, for experiencing different worlds. I mean, just going back to, I finished this, you know, just before this whole craziness started, but I had a few episodes ago, I talked about The Name of the Wind by Patrick Rothfuss. That's like a great, like a little good chunk of fantasy to get into that you know you can burn away the pages it's kind of funny i almost feel guilty about some of our past conversations because you and i have been like you know the morbid desire to to um wish for disaster so that you could just read (laughs) endlessly (laughs) yeah or just you know have some free time like for that or yeah and and yeah this is uh almost tailor-made for that you know Mm mm-hmm it's it's not it's not the sort of disaster where like the power grid might go down as sort of thing. So you know you're gonna always you're gonna have the option still for mm-hmm. the yeah other media, but it it does set up pretty nicely for just you know disconnecting in mm-hmm. this way to do some reading. Like also, it's a good yeah. Up? I mean, disconnecting is also gonna be a thing that because this is also one of those times where it's like. It's just a whole ball of stress to just look into your phone or look into your computer 
and hear about the world. So it's like, if you need to step away from that, because basically all you're doing is opening up the the news feed and wondering, you know, what the next disaster is. And it's like, yeah. or you can open up a book and kind of just de-stress from that. There's another uh, <laughs> connection to uh, white noise, airborne toxic event. It's kind of like something like that. Right, you're about, right. But... Yeah, white noise is kind of... It's like a near future thing that happened after an airborne event, right? Yeah. Yeah. Ooh, that would be a good read. There's a good read. Um, But yeah, you're right. Taking a break from the news because, you know, watching the news right now just kind of makes you feel slightly more unhinged every 10 minutes. Like it's it's a little another click. There's a direct (laughs) correlation. There's a direct correlation between my news feed and my hypochondria right now. Yeah. Like as I dive in to just trying to keep up to date with what's going on, then I'm also like, you know, five minutes later, I'm like, is that a headache? Is that a fever? Is that a yeah. like I was like warm under my blankets last night and I was like, this is the end. Yeah. <laughs> um, I know. And, and uh, obviously, you know, my heart goes out to all the sensitive groups that are probably worse off than I am in that regard. But yeah. stay strong. I, I I understand that though. Like I was just like using like a Swiffer or whatever, and like obviously I was kicking up dust, and I sneezed, and I'm like, oh, that that's yep. it. <laughs> like <laughs> I have like a clear idea of where it originated. I'm like, nope, nope, it's uh, yeah. it's the start of something, and then you know quickly that went away. But still, mm-hmm. um, one thing though about this that's kind of unique is that it's not like um. I don't know. You're stuck with the books you got right now. <laughs> exactly. Libraries, libraries are closed as far in, in my yeah. town and around around here. Like, yep, the libraries are shut here. So this is a lesson to all those library dwellers that you also need to keep a stockpile of uh, yeah. purchased books. You can't exactly. write in library books, people. So yeah. support support your local bookstore. But no, you're right. You're right. I mean, if I had, if I didn't have a constant stockpile of to be read, then uh, I'd be in some trouble right now. And to be honest, there has been times in my life where that margin gets a little bit too thin. You yeah. Know, if there was a COVID-19 disaster after I had, you know, one of the times I had moved and only had brought a few books with me, then it would be chaos. But I guess there's always Kindle. Kindle yeah. saves the day once again. Yeah, you're, you'd be reading like, hell, like food labels and stuff. <laughs> Or Dr. Bronner's bottle. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, so I think reality for a lot of people moving forward and then at least the next couple of weeks or so is going to be, you know, working from home, mm-hmm. uh, you know, for um, Americans and, you know, people that are dealing with it right now or at that stage of the uh, kind of outbreak. But so I think you kind of got more experience than me in that. Would you, is that right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Home, I, I, at least recently. Yeah, I've worked from home a, a kind of a decent chunk of last year. Yes. Yeah. So, what would you say are good times like to read in that scenario? Like, when do you put aside? Do you kind of save it for the end of the day? I mean, because your day when you're working from home, I guess it's not the days. Mm. It's not a hard bookend on yeah on when the day starts or ends. Like, nice. Pun you take there, breaks right? and yeah, yeah. <laughs> you take breaks 
or what do you do? Uh, yeah, I think I would say brakes. Brakes are more fluid, and if you're feeling the pull of a book, that it's like, oh, I'm going out. Like technically, I'm going outside of my nine to five hours. You know, it's it's basically a slow burn to divorce the idea of your mind from being nine to five, and kind of more about how you can discover when your areas when you're productive. So, like for me personally, it was like, you know. I think one of the worst things for productivity is the whole idea of like get into work at a certain time like that yeah. that kills productivity even in the traditional workplaces so you know I would kind of take like a leisurely morning and then have like real productivity from like 11 to like around three or four o'clock then I would take like a massive dinner break slash, you know, do, do whatever, you know, play a game, read a book, you know, take, you know, eat like dinner or whatever, take a while to clean up. And then me personally, even though this sometimes feels like you're, you know, shooting yourself in the foot, then it's like going back into work, kind of like settling into an after dinner work session for a few hours that might last from like eight until nine or 10 or something like that. Um, being a bit of a night owl there. So I would break it up that way. Another thing that I think is like crazy helpful that I learned this from a freelancer who used to work for our old office in New York. And this was, this always stuck with me because I thought it was funny to hear at first, but it's definitely good. Is have you ever heard of the concept of like simulating your commute when you work from home? (laughs) So not a full, not a full simulation, not like sit in your car for an hour and be bored or anything like that. But a lot of freelancers stick by this that like have a work from home environment. And I definitely think it helps that, you know, we're not at the point with COVID-19 right now where you can't go outside. It's just that you shouldn't really, you know, be in rooms with tons of people. We don't want the the, the virus to spread. It's yeah. fucking bizarre that I'm saying that into a microphone like I feel like I'm in the future. <laughs> but we're not at the point yet where you can't go outside. So something that is good for f- work from home is... You know, first of all, get dressed for work, like take a shower and get dressed for work, because if you're in your PJs all day, you're not going to do shit. And (laughs) then another thing that this freelancer taught me from New York is actually like go out of your home and like walk around the block and then come home and be like, okay, I'm at work now. Like it's, it's definitely an environment change when you do that, when you do something like that, Okay. you know, get, get an errand done in the morning or maybe some exercise or something, but definitely get up dress for work, go like take a short walk or something that can cleanse your environment. And then you come back into the same home office and you're ready to go. Okay. I think I might bike to my own house then. Yeah, you should. You should. You definitely will get, you'll get more stuff done. Even if your commute was only a 10 minute bike ride. Okay. Yeah. I'll do a loop. Yeah. That sounds good. I'm going to need, I'm going to need some tips like that. But I would say if there's the draw of the book, you know, oh, normally at the office, I wouldn't be able to take a half an hour break to just go do whatever. Just do it when you're at home and then, you know, make up your work uh, in non-traditional hours. Yeah. I was uh, laughing to myself. I, I was at the grocery store like a couple of days ago when things, you know, were getting real crazy. It's probably mm-hmm. irresponsible, but yeah, I don't know. Had to get some food still, but I think... I was laughing at the idea of like, you know, you you're. Have you been to a grocery store in the last couple of days? 
I guess. I have. Well, I yeah. we went we went to a grocery store. Well, first of all, we went to Target, and we were like the group of people that were sort of naive, being like, maybe they'll have something left. And yeah. then we went to Target, and it was all like bombed out for paper products and like cleaning and everything. Yeah. But the thing that we find really ironic is. I mean, I guess another tip I would say is like go to a smaller ish grocery store, like the major ones, the ones with like that were big, that have like seemingly lots of customers, they were completely destroyed. But then we would go to like a smaller, you know, local one, like there's a chain here in California called Vaughn's. And we went to kind of like our local one that's our normal like quick shopping grocery store. And it's like they had everything like they, yeah. they didn't have the everyone's panic buying toilet paper, which is like, you know, the lowest form of human existence right now. But everything else they had and it was like ironic, you know, like Dario was saying to me, like they still have like a ton of fresh produce and like fresh food. Like it's not the end of the world. Yeah. So. Yeah. Well, I was I was laughing at the idea of like people doing the same acting the same way about like the like the book the book section at the uh, grocery store like it's yeah. all it's wiped out you know there isn't a there isn't a single like you know baldacci left i know baldacci. decimated <laughs> the baldacci. how do you what, feel like, about just... those how do you feel about those grocery store book sections because i feel like the the draw the physical object of the book will draw my attention no matter what it is, especially like when it's in aisles, but then I'm always visiting those, like glancing over the shelves at a grocery store book thing. And I'm like, why am I doing this? Like there's yeah. nothing here for me, I don't know. but I just I, have to, it's like compulsory. I just wanted to see someone like run down to that book section and just sweep like a whole <laughs> armload in it, like supermarket sweep, like the end <laughs> or whatever. <laughs> yeah, Reader's digest and yeah. uh you know, whatever the latest Stephen King paperback is. Exactly. So I think to, to summarize or to sum it up, just get to reading, I guess. And yeah. with, I don't know, are this podcast kind of like a proxy of like an online reading kind of group or what, mm -hmm. would, what would you call that? A book club. Book club. Yeah. I don't know why that escapes me, but online book club. <laughs> um, and yeah, no better time than right now. Yeah, absolutely. Like if anything has been sitting on your shelf and you've been waiting to get to it, like we said at the beginning, there's literally no excuses. After COVID-19, yeah. I don't want to hear anybody saying to me, oh, I just never found the time because yeah. we've all yeah. got it. We've, we've got time in abundance right now. Exactly. So, uh... Yeah, so this is episode 49. The, this is the crying of episode 49. And <laughs> I'm going first, so... All right. Is that a, the, is that a spoiler? No, I, I wish it was. That'd be cool. <laughs> but uh, this... It wasn't planned, but the book that I read this week um, was kind, it's kind of sort of perfect for what we just talked about, you know? Hmm. Um, and the message of it can be... I think at least for me twisted and applied to what's going on now with like the COVID-19 stuff. So sorry, we're going to, I guess, keep talking about it a little, <laughs> little bit. Okay. Uh, so have you heard the phrase or, you know, the, the famous quote, hell is other people? I have. Yeah. So normally like, what would that mean to you? Or like what, a um, I don't care about quizzing you about the source or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> what, it, like, what does that mean to you? 
Hell is Other People, I think, is just a general, uh, you know, it's the misogynistic viewpoint. No, not misogynist. Misogynist is men v. women. Uh, Misanthrope? Misanthrope, yeah. Misanthropic, yeah. Yeah, it's the common, like, misanthropic, like, other people are just, it's basically when you boil down anything, other people are your problem. And I think a lot of people... I think we get caught in our daily lives kind of like, this is my problem or this is my problem, but it really can just be boiled down to like, everybody sucks. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I think you're seeing a lot of that uh, going on right now. But yeah. Um, yeah, to me, like the original intent of this quote within like the context of the work that it belongs to, it's really kind of the struggle of, you know, not, I mean, I think there's a lot of layers to it, but it's like the struggle of not being able to read the minds of others, you know? That is always going to lead to problems. You're always going to like wish that you could do that and, you know, act like you, you know, can, you know, that sort of thing and, and make and, you know, fuck up all the time. It's, you know, it's not being able to understand what output you get for like a given input when you're dealing with other people. Mm -hmm. um, it's not being able to view yourself outside of, you know, what you think other people see you as. And out, you know, outside of just like the mind, it's kind of like the classic situation of being around someone for so long or someone that you don't, whatever, if you're going to use the term, don't vibe with or whatever, <laughs> like mm -hmm. everything they do has the power to become irritating or like even the absence of activity can become annoying. Right. So there's a lot to it, but uh, so, you know, to inform everyone listening except like the philosophy majors who already knew this uh this quote hell is other people it comes from the 1944 play no exit by jean paul sartre interesting so uh yeah i i really did pick this book randomly out of my <laughs> uh out of just like the bottom of one of my shelves this is cool and, because Sartre is one of those names where it's like it comes up constantly, but I just don't have yeah. any context. Okay. Yeah, I think um, this is a good introduction to him because it's only about 45 pages long. It's And it's a play. Um, cool. I imagine like the play could maybe be like an hour or so stretched out a bit, but I don't mm -hmm. really know um, how it's done on the stage, but... You got three three characters here, uh, Joseph Garcin, uh, Inez Serrano, and Estelle uh, Rigaud, I think. It's mm -hmm. like a French-looking name. But mm -hmm. there's also a, uh, a valet or sort of like a hotel bellhop or concierge kind of person mm -hmm. who brings these three people one by one and in the order that I read them, uh, Joseph, Inez, and Estelle. Brings them one by one into this room, of which there is no exit, like hmm. the uh, like the title there. And <laughs> pretty soon, you know, you're just kind of thrown into this. Pretty soon, you presume, and the characters, you know, start to realize themselves that they have died and that this is hell. Right. They are in the next world, the next stage of of life or whatever. And you know, there's some basic furniture here. Like there's, it's just a room. There's some furniture. There's lights that can't be turned off. There's a statue that can't be budged, like on the mantle. You can't affect anything here. Um, but the worst part about it is the other people. 
you know, you can't establish order here. You can't avoid conflict. And, you know, the whole time that they are waiting, they're, they're waiting to be tortured. You know, they realize, okay, we're, we're in hell. Um, Mm -hmm. they're just kind of anticipating it. And, you know, they establish with each other that they're all there for a reason, which is, you know, they have hurt others or they sinned in in their own different ways. Mm. Um, so the modern pair, like example here is, uh, have you seen the show, the good place? Yeah. I've seen a few episodes of the place. Yep. Yeah. Which, I mean, if you've seen it or if you know the premise, it's obviously super influenced by this play, No Exit. Mm -hmm. It's about the afterlife where it's set up so that the the torture is to be around people that are your opposite or specifically Mm -hmm. chosen to be, you know, your personal antagonist. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, so it's kind of, it's one of those things like where a, they're waiting to be tortured, but actually the torture is what they're already been going through. Yeah. Kind of yeah. So that's like the big, the big reveal here. And I don't, I don't, f- I don't feel too bad about spoiling that. It's this <laughs> super famous old play. Um, that's like the, the line at the end where they you know that the quote, like hell is other people. That's like the powerful line mm-hmm. at the end of the play or near the end of the play. Um, so the three people are there, you know, they're there to torture each other. So it's kind of like, think like the first half of the breakfast club where you never get <laughs> to like the second half. <laughs> right. First half of breakfast club on loop. Yeah. Yeah. And then, you know, it's assumed that they'll never be able to put their differences aside and be okay with it. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, you know, to bring it to the present moment again, I think everyone... Uh, in an area, you know, dealing with COVID-19 can kind of take that famous quote, hell is other people, and you can adapt it towards social distancing here. <laughs> right. You know, <laughs> you you don't want to be the one responsible for spreading the virus to others, you know, so hell is other people. Just like change the tone of that one <laughs> or something. Take uh, it put a comp- Yeah. Could you put a comma? Could you change a couple words there and make it adapt mm-hmm. to this? Hell is hell other. Is... <laughs> hell is less than six feet. <laughs> okay, yeah. Uh, Keep your distance from other people because it's hell. I don't know. <laughs> You'll go to hell if you're around other people. <laughs> hell is being around other. Uh, I don't know. There's any small way, but. Um, and then I was thinking, you know, again, like for some people, hell is the absence of other people. You know, you don't like being alone mm-hmm. but i don't know that's uh c- critical i guess with, with what's going on it so. sounds like this like this play i bet you there's modern reinterpretations of it because you know how people have been getting more and more into those like escape rooms and like experimental like uh when i was in london we went to like a live performance of the great gatsby so yeah. it's like a play version of The Great Gatsby, but you can walk in all these rooms and you can go into different rooms while like all this stuff is going on. There's also a famous London movie club called Secret Cinema that does stuff like that. So it sounds like this is probably out there in some form. People have probably definitely done it as one of those like escape room, you know, live theater type things. Yeah. Yeah, I think there's there's been a few versions of this. Um the first one on the stage was, uh, you know, 
I would I would totally go see this, but the first one on the stage I think was uh or at least in London. What's the um what's the London equivalent of of saying like a Broadway play? West End. The West, West End. En- the West End is where all like the major sort of theaters are. Okay. Um yeah, uh, it was uh Alec Alec Guinness aka, you know, Obi-Wan Kenobi. That was the in, first one in 1946. Whoa, see, I thought Sartre was way before that. That's why I have no context. <laughs> well, no, the, the, crazy. Plays from, the plays from 44, 1944, it was his first whoa. play. Whoa, 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 whoa. I thought yeah, we were talking so it's modern. about... I thought we were talking about like 1600s Paris or something. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, I think, I think this story has been analyzed to hell, uh, but... You know, I think it's it, it's read a lot in, in those AP English or whatever. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of philosophy students are very familiar with this, but right. um, I didn't dive too heavy into that. I do recommend reading it. It was it was good. Um, it was and interesting. Forty five pages. Yeah, yeah. It was interesting to me. I, I wasn't fully like quarantined yet, where I was ready to read something mm-hmm. giant. So wait for the next week. <laughs> but it was interesting for me to see like the in, some of the influence that this play had on a lot of like TV and movies and like like mm-hmm. I said like the good place. Uh, first of all, just like the depiction of taking an elevator to hell, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Right. That's that's been in like so many cartoons and stuff like this demonic bellhop or whatever, <laughs> where like the arrow that shows you the floor like. Mm-hmm. goes all the way to the left or whatever, like right, breaks yeah, the yeah. uh breaks the <laughs> thing um down into hell yeah yeah or you know hell also just hell being like a boring place instead mm-hmm. of like dante fire and right torture and all that stuff like just a boring hell so it's kind of interesting and uh you know i was also thinking to myself like there's some significance to the fact that there are three people in the room mm-hmm. you know three seemed like a it's a good recipe for chaos and obviously an odd number makes it so that there's no pairing and that sort right. of thing so i wanted to like i was like okay maybe i don't know this is the 40s but let's just see maybe like i wanted to find out the origin of the phrase like three's a crowd or mm-hmm. you know two's company three's a crowd i didn't know where it started but you know, where like a third person spoils the ideal of a, like a one-on-one sort of thing. Right. You know, third wheel. But uh, I looked and that traces way back to like the mid 1500s. So <laughs> not, not even close. Like there's some old fifth, fifth, uh, proverb from 1546. I'm not sure of the country of origin or whatever. But three people definitely significant i think it makes sense hey um, the number three throughout history we're the third yeah. rock from the sun yep um triangles strongest shape uh but yeah this was a good read as things were really starting to escalate here in the last week um and i you know i just you could read it in one sitting and it was that sort of thing just i think i read it on monday night or something uh, but yeah, it, it can also remind you that, hey, things can be worse here. You can be trapped in an ontological hell for uh, eternity. And 
I was anticipating you asking me who I would cast in this play. Oh, my 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 normal <laughs> yeah question because you're well you're kind of in play world right now. You've been le- yeah. leading some plays here and there. Are you uh, thinking Last about a career change? Maybe I don't know. Uh, so Seems Mark, normal. who would you cast in this play? <laughs> That's a good question. Um, so Joseph is I I like I didn't grasp too many of the like the physical descriptions here but mm-hmm. joseph is like the uh he's the first person there he's like the introductory character he's a french or european guy who was you know he's there because he was unfaithful to his wife uh, he was you know killed as a deserter during world war ii mm-hmm. um and i was gonna go ahead and make him uh paul giamatti nice paul just yeah. because yeah just because. Just because. And then Inez Serrano, she's like the, she's a big time manipulator. That's why she's there. She's a, she died as a result of kind of interfering with her cousin's relationship. She was like the third wheel or like the love mm-hmm. triangle sort of thing and mm-hmm. made it, you know, everyone ended up uh, down because of that. Uh, so I was going to make, and she's also like the big time uh, kind of shit starter in the in the room too, uh, and I was gonna make I was gonna cast her as um, uh, Michelle Rodriguez there because I think it's oh, like yep. she got the right intensity. <laughs> I think that would be good. So we got Paul and, Giamatti, Michelle Rodriguez. Yeah, <laughs> and then you got Estelle, uh, who's kind of like her thing is she's like conceited, snobbish, or like sort of uh, high society kind of person and then she ended up kind of interfering with and like ending several lives with her sort of like detachment from uh you know consequence and, and stuff like that i wasn't really sure about that one uh i just picked off the top of my head uh kristen ritter you know mm-hmm. she's in like jessica jones and stuff i thought her like uh character for i don't know if you've seen the show like don't trust the b in apartment 23 that show yep canceled show but that was pretty good um i think playing that same sort of character would maybe work and then the last one uh because there's not many people here the valet um i was just gonna go with bill Hader in this one nice. I don't know, he'd make it like a intense <laughs> facer he wasn't featured too much but he just kind of like that i think i could picture it bill Hader dressed up as like a bellhop mm-hmm. we'll have to to reach out to all their agents see if we can get this thing going yeah doesn't sound uh, too impossible yeah everyone's got some free time to think about it right now (laughs) Uh, so I'll close it out with a one star review here this is from user Patricia Uh, says this book is very crazy Sartre's opinion of hell is so different to everything you'd imagine don't know what to think about it it was no book I would have read on my own. It was a school book. <laughs> That's funny. So there you go. And the cover of this one is a doorway uh, with a brick, like a brick wall in the doorway. I feel like the only criticism that came from that one star review is actually the one star. It's like she thought she was like, wow, it's so imaginative. And I read it for school. <laughs> one star. <laughs> 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 yeah, sometimes. Nice. Can't help it. 
Cool. Well, good job. Now I know that Sartre, he has that name that sounds like he's from the ancient past, you know, like that, yeah. that happens with people sometimes where it's like, oh, that must have been a French philosopher from a, a period I'm unfamiliar with. And it's like, nope, Alec Guinness in the forties. <laughs> yeah. So uh, J- JPS, going to read some more. Nice. JPS. Cool. Well, um, good job. And I think that it's interesting that we kind of you started out with, you know, hell is other people. And especially a quote that jumped out at me was, you know, that we talked about just before now was everybody sucks. <laughs> um, and I guess that might somehow be the theory and theme behind coronavirus. But it's not that everybody sucks. It's that I'm actually surprised how how like quickly everyone has taken to the theme of banding together. I mean, there's like a few outliers of people who are like, we're just fuck it. We're just going to go to the bar. But um, for the most part, it's a worldwide phenomenon of being like, don't let old people get sick. Yeah, uh, pretty, pretty interesting. Gotta but um, in contrast to that, uh, I think my book kind of fits the theme of everybody sucks as well. Hmm. Um, I guess hell is other people is other people could be applied to this. But my book comes from before JPS. It comes. Uh, it's the 1914 Japanese novel called Kokoro by Natsumi Soseki. Um, now, how did I get down the path of reading yet another Japanese novelist? <laughs> There's basically two. You, I think I give you two guesses on like which author brought me to reading like another Japanese novelist. It's pretty easy guess. <laughs> well, it's either Desai or uh, or Mishima, Mishima or uh, Murakami. Or Murakami. Okay, yes. So it's a, it's probably a combination of Mishima and Murakami. I think that there's some connection between Mishima and Soseki in terms of like just being mentioned in the same article. But Murakami is kind of a more direct, uh, you know, someone pushing the the reputation of Natsumi Soseki even further than it already is uh, developed in in Japan. Um, a quote from the back of this novel Kokoro before I get into the to the meat of what the book is about from Haruki Murakami says Soseki is the representative modern Japanese novelist, a figure of truly national stature. So he kind he probably did actually come to me via Murakami. Um, he there there's a quote um, even on Wikipedia it says part of his legacy and a reason for his emergence and global interest is attributed to Murakami who said Soseki was his favorite writer. Um, and I could definitely see that kind of playing out even in like the limited knowledge that I have of this author's um, bibliography. This is the only book I've read by him in true quarantine fashion. I read this 230 page book in one day and, uh, so it was obviously an easy read. Uh, I think I read it in about a day and change. So, you know, read it one night while falling asleep and then the next day just knocked it out. Um, so it was extremely easy to read. And I could see, um, you know, the development, almost what I know about Japanese literary history from like, this is the guy before the other guys, you know, he's he's born in 1867, this novel is published in 1914 he actually only lives to be age 49 and he dies two years after this book is published so he died in 1916 and a really cool thing that i discovered uh, you know how i often talk about how like getting into downton abbey kind of 
educated me as an American about the time leading up to World War One because our like education system just doesn't care about World War One. <laughs> mm-hmm. No one even knows anything about it in America. So as I got into Downton Abbey, it's like, oh, that's cool. Like this period of history that I'm learning about. And I feel like Saseki and his bibliography is drawing me towards a section of Japanese history that you don't really know about because who like the Japanese writers that we read, what had already happened when they started publishing their books? Yeah, uh, the big one. The big one, the, the big atomic. two, yes. <laughs> Atomic Moms. So in the history of Japan, there's like this significant sort of like cutoff point. It's like saying, you know, oh, so reading someone pre 9-11 and post 9-11 or like, yeah. you know, these like massive things where it's like everything from this point on is going to be like maybe not. I mean, maybe Murakami escapes the idea that like his references aren't just about like the bombs and everything. But there is something there of like, okay, post World War Two Japan, like that's what's going on. So Saseki, this book being published in 1914, he's educating me about a period of Japanese history that is from sort of like the late 1800s is when Japan is like kind of more feudal and more, they have like this isolationist policy of being like closed off from the world, you know, think like samurai and like the West, they don't trade with the West yet and like everything like that. And he's literally born into the end of that period. So he's born in 1867 and he starts what's called the Meiji period or like when there was basically an emperor of Japan, emperor Meiji or Meiji or however I'm butchering the pronunciation as I'm sure I am. Um, So it's like, yeah, it's like this interesting time in history where it's like, oh, I'm reading something where it's like the... Even when the novel is published, even what the novel is talking about has nothing to do with World War II and it hasn't even happened yet. So that's like kind of an interesting thing to read from the Japanese voice because I feel like everything else is more influenced by that. Um, So let's get down into what Kokoro is. First of all, the title of the book, Kokoro, is just the Japanese word for heart. Um, but the, tr- the translator Meredith McKinney writes in her introduction that the novel's title is complex and it's an important word that can perhaps best be explained as the thinking and feeling heart. So it's distinguished from, you know, just like the word that means the biological organ and that it's just like from it's not just pure intellect and it's not just human feeling. It's sort of both. So the concept of Kokoro is like feeling and thinking. Okay. I keep hearing, I can't help it, but I keep hearing Kokomo, like the Beach Boys. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. The Beach Boys in 1914 Japan. Yeah. Um, So, yeah. So that is like a very kind of apt description of the rest of the book. Um, To give you a few just plot points to hold on to, the, the book is cut into three sections. There's an introductory section where a young student kind of becomes obsessed with this older gentleman who he calls his sensei, but he has, he's not his teacher. He's going to a university, but he kind of just like sees this old guy like hanging out on the beach one day and he kind of gets like strangely obsessed with him. It's actually a little bit like stalkerish in the beginning where it's like, why is this kid like so obsessed with this older guy? But you kind of get over that quickly as they, sort of just like they don't really become friends, but he becomes enamored with this older guy who has the sensibilities of sort of like the past era. So, you know, Japan is being Westernized right now. Like 
there's universities and like this kid is just going to school or whatever. And then there's like this older man who's from a different period who sensei is like relatively well off. He has like, he doesn't have any money troubles. Like he lives in a house, but doesn't have a job and it's just him and his wife. And he's sort of, you sort of slowly learn that this guy, his sensei that he, you know, for some reason sort of, is it not physically attracted to, but like, intellectually attracted to he's sort of like a layabout who is like a little bit of a nihilist like like i said everybody sucks <laughs> you're 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 learning from the outside in and it's a big mystery in the first chunk of the book like what's wrong with this guy like what happened to him like obviously the mystery of the book is going to be what we learn about what happened with this guy's life but for now you're from the outside looking in like there's this just like cynical old man and it's like he doesn't trust anyone he doesn't even trust this new like young companion that he has that he sees a few times a month and like what's the deal then eventually, you know, typical like novel type stuff, the young student, he has his father is ailing. And in a way, his sensei is like a replacement for his father because he comes from a countryside home. But since he goes to school in Tokyo, he almost is sort of like replacing like the father figure with sensei. So then his actual father starts to kind of pass away and he's obligated to go back home so there's like a chunk of the book where he goes back home and there's some really good stuff in that chunk of the book about how you know like parents you know throughout all of history they've just never changed i mean i'm reading a book from 1914 <laughs> they about, just don't understand they just don't understand like back to the will smith track like parents just don't understand and What's interesting is like, you know, he's recently graduated from school. He goes back home to like take care of his ailing father and he doesn't really, he's in like a kind of in-between period in his life. But the way that Soseki writes the like parent characters is very like, it's perfect for that balance of like, you love them, but they're putting this weird pressure on you from a generation that's like not there, like you're not of their generation and like they don't get it. Like he's looking for a job and like the mom has like has, says all these awkward things. Like if you just get a position before your father dies, like that will be like, you know, the culmination of his existence and everything will be fine and like whatever. And he's like, God damn it. Like, it's not how the world works anymore. Like, I'm a young student. Like, I don't, you know, like, he doesn't rapidly have to search for a job because he knows that his future is, like, sort of secure. And, but the but the way that I just said it and the reaction that it elicited in you, like, wow, like, his mom is putting a lot of pressure on him. It's not really brought up in that way. It's all very, like, awkward and subtle and sort of like, oh, this is just what parents are like. Like, they're, they're just like, oh, they're, like, annoying. They'll take care of you. But, like, God damn it. Um that's interesting to, to read that sort of thing in like a very pretty old book now, hundred year old. No, book. yeah, yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. Like the, yeah. they, they just never change. Like the differences between generations is is incredible. And then it's always going to be there, no matter what. Part of it is innate. It doesn't just have to do with you know the 50s versus the 80s or whatever. Yeah, we're gonna um, be we're gonna be that too. Exactly. Um, but another thing that's okay. So he goes home, and there's this whole thing. Um, but the, at the base of this story, what really is just at the core of everything, and it's a quote from his sensei from earlier on in the book, is that there there's a breakdown of sort of, and the, and the translator who wrote an introduction put it perfectly, um, the themes in Soseki's book are themes of betrayal and of failure of moral nerve. So basically the idea that like when push comes to shove, you're in it for yourself. 
Like that is what is happening in this book from, you know, moment one is that this guy, the young student guy is who's an unnamed narrator. That's why I keep saying the young student. He is going through a transition in his life where like lots of things are happening. But like when he goes off to meet with his father, he's like, yeah, my father's dying. I have to go back home. And sensei is like, have you figured out what the inheritance is going to be? Like how it's going to break down. And it's like, damn, this guy is so cynical. Like my dad is dying, but and he's starting to talk about that. And then the more you learn about sensei's life is that like, there's drama from his past where it's like his entire life got like fucked up because he was supposed to inherit this stuff from his parents and his uncle like messed up like messed it all up and squandered it away and kind of like took it from him Mm -hmm. so there's all these like basically intensely emotional moments throughout the book where it's like and i'm kind of isolating here because the the structure of the novel is a little bit strange and that's my one criticism that i'll get into in a moment but the basic thing is when there are these pivotal moments in life when it really comes down to it you're in it for yourself And like, that's the only thing that's true. That's kind of what this book is about. The third section of the book, which I think is like, is sort of a weakness. I'm surprised I didn't see this in any other of like the criticisms of the book. But um, the other like thing is the third section of the book is a massive letter from sensei to the young unnamed narrator that is just a total release of okay now you're going to find out everything about this guy's past so literally a third of the book is sensei sort of takes over the first person narrative and um kind of gives you all those juicy details that you've been waiting for um and that was weird because the book, he sort of takes over the book and that goes all the way through to the end. Like there's no resolution for what you find out about the young unnamed narrator. Like there's other shit going on in the book that's like really dramatic. And then Sensei just takes over the narrative and that goes all the way to the end. So really? that was like the one thing where I was sort of like, this is kind of weird how it like never like really wraps up. But I guess I'm, maybe I'm just looking for too traditional of a narrative. Um But yeah, then we dive into another story, which I learned was like I eventually learned through the history of this book is that um, originally Saseki was only going to write this one part of the book as the novel. And then he tacked on those other stuff to the beginning. Um, But you dump into this whole other narrative about Sensei's past and his life. And it comes down again to that everybody sucks. You're only out for yourself thing where there was this whole drama in his youth, like basically how he won his wife not one, but like how he got her hand in marriage, like in those early days of the Meiji period, like after, you know, um, you know, once Japan opened itself to the West, he had this friend that he was basically like competing for their, for the affections of this girl. And I won't spoil everything, but let's just say it ends in a traditional Japanese tragedy. Um, so you can, you know, put that where, where you think it's going to go, but basically even sensei himself, once he takes over the first person narrative, you kind of learn that he's like cynical and he's terrible and everything, but he's also kind of a piece of shit. Like he basically just tells this story about like me and my friend loved this same girl. And then when push came to shove, I, he, his friend kind of showed his hand, um, to him and was like, yeah, I love her. And he was like. He kind of like clams up about it and keeps to himself and then uses that information to completely destroy him. So it's sort of like 
it's this really interesting sort of dynamic and people who, you know, analyze his work are basically also saying like the people the his friend who he screwed over and the idea of like Western individualism, that's like what's at odds. Like the two themes that are at odds is like before Japan westernized itself, they were it was like this Confucian, like there was this romanticized idea of these people who were very like into like not of like, you know, not of, you know, lust and love, but like spiritual love and trying to, you know, achieve like spiritual oneness. And then like the new Westernization is like, no, nah, bro, everybody's out for themselves. And so am I like just that's the world now. Oh. So it, it plays out in these traditional Japanese characters. Um, there's a lot of really cool quotes in there. Going back to, like, the whole Mishima style of, like, yeah, it's just, like, cool writing. Like, the translators are obviously doing a really good job, like, paring down all the metaphors and everything. Um, you know, a quick quote for just, you know, giving an example of how it dives into some deep shit is, like, here's a part where I think this is, yeah, this is sense this is in the voice of Sensei, and he's basically saying what he believes about, you know, the, the world. So he says... I believe that a commonplace idea stated with a passionate conviction carries more living truth than some novel observation expressed with cool indifference. It is the force of blood that drives the body, after all. Words are not just vibrations in the air. They work more powerfully than that and on more powerful objects. So there's all these like philosophical kind of things where it's like when you say something in anger and passion, looking out for yourself, his philosophy is that it's like a more valid kind of like point of view than keeping things cool and thinking about it you know that kind of stuff and okay. what's breaking down throughout the course of the novel is that kind of like what is true what isn't true and he, i think he's trying to make people have like take a step back and be like maybe the old way was like better than the new way of like just being an individual and taking everything for yourself mm -hmm. um Another great, great quote from towards the end of the book was uh, at this moment, he's talking, he's talking about something like he doesn't know what one person said was true or not. And that's another good thing about this book is that like, there's a lot of what does he know? What does she know? What do I know? Kind of things. And a lot of people like being quiet and keeping to themselves, but then, you know, striking like a, you know, like a scorpion or something like that where it's like this is what i know and then it changes everything yeah, so there's a lot of good yeah bombshells he's definitely he's all about bombshells he's that's why it was so easy to read because it was like there's so much tension and then he like you know then then, then the bass drops nice like some so, count of monte cristo like yeah yeah definitely stuff, right? definitely some cool. count of monte cristo like keeping the tension between these characters and then like oh shit what did he do <laughs> um so here's a good quote um I kept a close watch on all that Okusan and Ojisan did and spoke, and questioned whether what I saw truly reflected what was in their hearts. Could that delicate and complex interest, instrument that lies in the human breast ever really produce a reading that was absolutely clear and truthful, like a clock's hands pointing to numbers on its dial? I wondered. In other words, only after a convoluted process of interpreting everything now one way and now another did I finally settle on my decision, although strictly speaking the word settle is singularly inappropriate for my state of mind at this time. So he's very much like he's in every character's head being like, he said, she said, I felt, then I took a hundred pages to decide what I was going to do, but it's going to blow your mind. 
like that kind of thing. So very psychological, very like, you know, educating me about this period in Japanese history and overall just like, of course, you know, like Murakami's like, this guy was the man. And going back to that whole thread, I almost felt like he was in a weird way, like, representative of like there's there's like the Mishima side of things right like the conservative like quiet like this is the emotions and how we're gonna feel and like whatever and all these like philosophical wanderings which is why Mishima is so great mm-hmm. and but then like this you know stoic yeah like the stoicness and but then Soseki also has sort of like a Murakami side where it's just like addictive and like a page turner and like there's good characters I mean even like I want to check out his first novel that he wrote. I mean, what could be more Akami than this? He wrote the first thing that he published was a novel called I Am a Cat. <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, okay, like the Murakami roots go deep, and like that I Am a Cat is probably a less serious, more like and I actually researched it, and that first novel is like literally from the perspective of a cat, like a household nice. cat. So it's like, okay, this is like some Murakami shit going in with some Mishima stuff all mixed together. But obviously, I think he was like one of those people who influenced everybody. Um, so I've talked enough about this book, but obviously it's on my recommendation list. Kokoro, meaning the thinking and feeling heart. Who's the author uh, one more time? Natsumi Soseki. Soseki, okay. Yeah, and uh, he's he's a monster. He's definitely good. And like I said, 230 pages, quarantine, one day, no excuse. <laughs> um, so yeah, I mean, my one-star review is from Goodreads user Page. And uh, they say, finishing Kokoro left me with the same feeling I had in grade nine when I finished reading Romeo and Juliet. Frustrated, disgruntled, and annoyed at the incompetence of these foolish characters. <laughs> uh, definitely true. Definitely one of those things. Like, have you ever watched the show Lost? Oh, of course, yeah. Yeah, so like Lost is like, if only these three people had talked to each other, then nothing would be happening in this yeah. show. So it's <laughs> it's sort of like that too. There's all these very, these these Japanese characters that it's like, if only you speak what's in your heart, then everything will get fucking solved, but you're just being selfish and like, and just staying like, you're being too gentle with everyone and then everything yeah. gets fucked up. Um, so that's definitely at the heart of Kokoro. Um, but yeah, definitely recommend it. Really cool book. Sounds good. I always like to like, you know, travel backwards in the, what's influencing the stuff that we already know that we like, you know, definitely, definitely. That's good. That's, that's what brought me here. So yeah, definitely. Um, but thanks for everyone, everybody listening during this, uh, difficult time of quarantine, but I guess it's also a time to listen to a bunch of podcasts. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. We're going to be in the yeah, money. Live entertainment's <laughs> gone, but podcast entertainment's like... Through the roof. You know, yeah. Awesome. So uh, thanks, everybody, for listening. This has been another episode of Shitty Book Reports. You can find us on most Sundays uh, on SoundCloud, Spotify, Instagram, Twitter, Stitcher, basically wherever podcasts are not sold because this podcast is 100% free. Uh, please email us any of your thoughts, uh, corrections, suggestions at sbrthepodcast at gmail.com. And uh, see you next time. See ya.